I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending December 10th. Today we're going to talk about the prospects for nuclear fusion as an energy source. If science could figure out how to build a fusion generator, fusion energy would be as powerful and as clean an energy source that the world could hope for. But after half a century and untold billions of dollars spent on research already, nobody can yet control the process. Some people, including no small number of nuclear engineers, conclude that commercial fusion is a pipe dream. And yet, all of a sudden this year, the topic began generating a lot of attention again. In the last decade or so, a growing number of scientists have become encouraged that controlling fusion power is, in fact, possible. In the last five years alone, the number of commercial companies looking to create fusion generators has doubled. There are now over two dozen. In that same span of time, the amount of money pouring in to fund fusion research has been skyrocketing, with venture capital firms investing billions of dollars alongside government agencies. Today, our guest is Melanie Windridge, a plasma physicist and the author of a recent report that surveys recent activity in the commercial fusion energy market. Today, we're not going to decide definitively whether commercial fusion power is feasible. No one can yet. But we can explore why fusion energy has become such a hot topic. Fusion energy. Why now? And what's changed? The private investment coming into the field, I think, is really what is helping to to have the effect on that curve that you were talking about with like the the number of private companies because private companies are now being able to exist and raise funding and and actually work towards fusion in a way that before was only possible in the public laboratories. First, a rundown of some more recent news in EE Times this week. Chemical giant Merck and data analytics firm Palantir Technologies are collaborating to create a tool that will let semiconductor fabs connect with their suppliers of chemicals and materials. The two companies aim to use artificial intelligence to analyze fab data, ideally leading to more efficient operations. And since there's a chip supply shortage, they promise to help fix that problem too. In an opinion article, William Lazonic, professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, notes that U.S. semiconductor companies could have been investing in fab capacity all along, but many of them chose instead to buy back their own stock. The question then becomes, why should U.S. taxpayers be on the hook for funding domestic manufacturing when it wasn't a priority for the chip companies themselves? A contrary view on the proposed Chips for America Act. Intel said it plans to spin out Mobileye through an IPO. Get the details on why and how in our story on the website. Meanwhile, the Federal Trade Commission said it intends to sue to stop NVIDIA's proposed acquisition of ARM. Read our story to find out what ARM's alternatives might be if the deal falls through. If you are already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left. You'll see links to all of these stories and more. If you're not already on the site, you can go straight to eetimes.com for all of our coverage. With the world heating up, it is imperative to move away from the fossil fuels that contribute so much to global warming and replace those with cleaner forms of energy. If nuclear fusion could be controlled, it might be the ultimate source of energy. 
It would be powerful, clean, and safe, and that makes it very attractive. But scientists have been trying to achieve nuclear fusion for 50 years now, and a half century later, no one has yet to sustain a fusion reaction, and no one has been able to get more energy out of a system than was put in to start a fusion reaction. Now, that can be interpreted as a half century of failure, and it has been. But with such dire circumstances, it's hard not to hope for the best and pursue the possibility of fusion power. And frankly, there have been a lot of encouraging developments in fusion of late. One among several important operating parameters for fusion reactors is the ability to heat a plasma to 100 million degrees Celsius. That temperature is considered the threshold for sustaining a fusion reaction on Earth. The company TAE is a 1998 spin-out from the University of California at Irvine. Earlier this year, the company said it achieved a plasma temperature of 50 million degrees C. That result encourages the company to believe it has a clear path to get to 100 million degrees in a few years. The result also encouraged investors to hand over another 280 million to the company, bringing TAE's funding to a total of 880 million. Over the summer, a startup called Helion said it had heated a plasma to the 100 million degrees C threshold, though it did not achieve sustained fusion. The result was encouraging enough, however, for Helion to attract 500 million in funding a few months later. Now, these are just some of the several recent developments that have sparked renewed interest in fusion. Fusion companies are represented by the Fusion Industry Association, or FIA. Now, in conjunction with the UK Atomic Energy Authority, Last month, the FIA published a report that surveyed fusion companies about their technological approaches, their recent achievements, their funding, and their plans. The lead author of that report is Dr. Melanie Windridge, who has a PhD in plasma physics, which is to say fusion energy, from Imperial College London. She is a founder of Fusion Energy Insights and a communications consultant for privately funded fusion company Tokamak Energy. I called up Windridge to find out where the fusion industry might be and what all this activity might mean. Melanie, tell me about the report, what the report is, uh, what the purpose is. So the report that um, we just put out recently, it was produced by the Fusion Industry Association and the UK Atomic Energy Authority. And it's called the Global Fusion Industry in 2021. And the aim of the report was really to first of all, uh, provide a, a directory of the fusion businesses that we know about at the moment, the private fusion companies, uh, but also to to gather some information from them. So we have some statistics about the growing fusion industry that will provide a reference point uh, for people uh, like wanting to know about the, the emerging industry and, and a reference point going forward. So if we repeat this in future years, then we'll be able to see how things are changing and hopefully how things are growing. So those were the main aims. All of a sudden, in the last 10 years, we've gone from maybe five or six or seven companies to over 20. Um, is there, is there, had there been anything going on in fusion research that uh, made people realize that now is the time to get into the technology? Or were there advances that that were particularly encouraging that that uh, justify so many companies getting into this? I think it's a mixture of things coming together 
that have really begun to drive the fusion industry forward. Uh, some of those things, I, I, I see it as, um, yeah, maybe like four, four or so things coming together. And um, one of those is that we've got fairly mature science uh, in fusion now. I'll talk about each of these in turn, but for fairly mature science, then, then we've got emerging technologies and we've also got climate change and environmental considerations and and then private investment. So if we look at these things separately, fusion has been researched for several decades now, since about like the 1950s or so. And um, and when they started doing that, they really <laughs> you know, had no idea about fusion. Uh, and in fact, the whole field of plasma physics has really grown up around fusion research. So they started off researching fusion, thinking that it was going to be pretty straightforward and then quickly realized that they didn't understand this this new state of matter and it was quite complex. And, you know, that's just the very inner workings. Like, so that's not even thinking about how you might build a power station. That's just about how you get the, the gas hot enough, basically, to make, make fusion ha- happen in the first place. So the whole field of plasma physics has really grown up around fusion energy research. And, and over these decades, we've learned so much about plasmas and about these machines that we can use to, uh, t- to control plasmas and to make fusion happen. And, uh, and so we're at a stage now where the science is fairly mature. Now, that's not to say that everything is solved. There are still things that we don't know and things that we need to work on. But the science is mature. So that's one thing. The next thing is emerging technologies. And we see technologies change all the time. And we'll all be familiar in our day-to-day lives with like how much technology has changed just over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Like I sometimes say... That yeah, when I so I'm, I'm in my early forties, and I remember when I was a child, I used to play my music on a Walkman, right, a little cassette player Walkman. <laughs> that was like, the coolest thing, wasn't it? Yeah, big <laughs> headphones, and um, and this was, and at, at this time, there were there were machines like like the Eater Tokamak, for example. Uh, were being designed uh, with that kind of level of technology and and things have changed so much since then I think um, you know the mobile phone appeared in my teens and the smartphone in my uh, late 20s you know so things have changed a lot and uh, and so these technologies new technologies can really affect what's possible in fusion research as well and and i think that's a, you know that's a really big thing so people are using or building on the foundations of the science that's gone before but they're bringing in these new technologies and these new capabilities and they're saying like well what does this enable to, us to do uh, that's different and better and some key technologies uh, are things like uh, well, we often talk about high temperature superconductors in mm-hmm. um, in fusion, which are used to make magnets. Because one of the ways that you can do fusion, which essentially means keeping your fuel hot enough for long enough <laughs> for fusion reactions mm. to occur, um, is that you can use magnets, huge magnetic fields to to trap your fusion fuel. And so basically the the better your magnet the the higher magnetic field you can get the better the trap you can make for your fuels and so it kind of feeds through into the efficiency of the machine and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. so 
These high temperature superconductor materials, which can make higher magnetic fields, are often seen as a, a real game changer for fusion energy. But it's a, a relatively new technology that is still under development by some of the private fusion companies. Uh, so that's that's just one technology, but also we've seen huge strides in computing. So high performance computing, machine learning, AI, uh, you know, data, like these kind of things are now being brought into fusion to to change so many things. We can make better simulations of of, mm. of what we of the plasma, but also the machines. You can use it to optimize machine designs. Uh, you can even use it to optimize machine operations sometimes mm-hmm. and. There are new things that people are exploring as well, like can you uh, can you quantify the uncertainty in in you know the the pathways going forward? And uh, so there's there's a lot of ways that you can bring uh, the, the high performance computing into fusion. So those are just a, a couple of examples, but emerging technologies are, are are huge. And then on top of that, we're seeing a much greater urgency to address climate change or at least energy issues and sustainability uh, that just wasn't there even 10 years ago and certainly 20 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, and that's meaning that there's an increase in impact investment. There's an increase in just wealthy individuals or um, you know, family offices and other kinds of investors who who really want to be doing something exciting and meaningful as well as something that will bring a huge return because the fusion opportunity is is huge the energy market is worth trillions and if you can really you know get something that can that can take a, a share of that then it's a huge opportunity so it's not just impact investing um but it's long term it's longer term investing but it's tremendously exciting um so i think that the the uh the energy and the climate uh, issues are causing more investors to take more interest, but they're also causing governments to take more interest, and um, and that's that's a that's a big thing. We're seeing changes, like particularly in the UK, just recently, the government's now released a fusion strategy, says that they want to commercialise fusion energy. They're also working on a regulatory framework, which will give companies in the industry certainty. And there's activity in the US, and they're pushing for public-private partnerships. So there's various things happening. Um, around the world, actually, also like China are very interested in fusion and Japan as well. So there's a lot happening uh, around fusion and with with a you know energy and climate uh, backdrop, and and so this is driving investment and the private investment coming into the field. I think is really what is helping to to have the effect on that curve that you were talking about with like the the number of private companies because private companies are now being able to exist and raise funding and and actually work towards fusion in a way that before was only possible in the public laboratories. So those are the key things, the key four things that I think have been coming together in recent years that are really driving us towards fusion commercialization. It's hard to generalize about the multiple approaches being taken towards fusion research today, but the one generality is is that we're still waiting. Um, where are we with fusion research in terms of the equipment we use to generate fusion reactions and where we are with the fusion reactions in terms of, um, 
how close they are to self-sustaining fusion, how long those uh, reactions can be sustained, that sort of thing, so that we can get a sense of where we where we improved from, where we are now, and how far we have to go. Okay, so that's uh, yeah. big, eight questions. Yes, big questions, <laughs> lots of questions all together there. Um, I think first of all to to delve into your point a little bit about <laughs> we're always waiting for fusion. Um, yes, I I know, I get it. Uh, like no one's more impatient than I am. Believe me, <laughs> I want to see fusion uh, happen as as soon as as soon as we can. Um, but I think that. I think that yeah, that, that there is that that big joke about fusion always being thirty years away. But it, I, it's it's like it hasn't been the right time until mm-hmm. until recently. Well, I hope now that we're going to see that things changing. But the technology, it, the investment, and in all coming together at once. Yeah, so, some of those yeah. things, but also the fact that I think the investment is a really important piece. And you did mention this as well about how much has been going into the fusion private companies. And if you look historically. Uh, the the fusion program has really just been drip fed, if you like. It's been in government labs, and it hasn't mm-hmm. received enough funding to to really get it over the line. It's just kind of been ticking over, getting enough funding to keep the the researchers like researching, but not enough money to really build big machines fast enough. You know, machines mm-hmm. that will actually answer the questions that we need to have answered, and then a pilot plant that's going to generate electricity. Like we've been. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for those those next machines that, that will answer the questions. And part of that was because, yes, it wasn't seen as a need. People were quite happy burning fossil fuels. Energy was fine. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there wasn't this necessity. Um, and so the funding hasn't hasn't been enough. And actually, there's a really interesting study that goes back to, I think, the 1970s in America, where they looked at different funding scenarios and they mm-hmm. said, you know, if you were going to do a kind of um, Manhattan project or Apollo kind of project and you just had enough money, all the money that you needed to to do it, like how long would it take? And they reckoned that you could get to uh, commercial fusion before the year 2000. And if you, if you reduce it back a bit, so you don't, you don't, maybe give them like everything they need. So there has to be some kind of things that, that are done in, in series rather than parallel, but you still got quite a lot of money and you're making fast progress. Then maybe you'd get it in like the 20, you know, the year, after the year 2000, 2010 or something like that. Anyway, so there's a few different scenarios. And then there was one, which was like, uh, if you, if you keep the funding at this particular level, you'll actually never get to fusion because you just, like, as I said before, like drip, literally drip feed the fusion program and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And you look at historically at the funding for fusion around the world and it's been at this this low level of like fusion never. <laughs> and, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so that's where we've been. So I think that one of the key things now that's that's changing is is the investment because not only are we relying on on government investment, we're getting private investment. And that means that other people, like real people, can take a stand and they can say, this is important to me and and I think it's going to be, you know, a big thing and and let's do this. And so you mentioned that, uh, yes, the private fusion companies to date, according to the report that we put out, uh, we, we surveyed, um, well, we surveyed uh, 23 
private mm. companies. There are a few more out there, but some for various reasons uh, like weren't ready to uh, to disclose information. Only 18 of the 23 disclosed funding. So of the 18 companies that disclosed funding, yes, they, they disclosed about 1.9 billion in funding combined to date, which is which is great. We thought that was like really good number. And the um, unicorn. Yeah, I was like, this is great. But uh, in the last, well, since we were since we released the report a little over a month ago, like it's already way out of date in the most glorious way because um, since then there have been a few announcements of funding for Fusion. The first one that surprised us was uh, for a company called Helion Energy, and they said they'd really uh, raised five hundred million dollars uh, to commercialize Fusion, and they had. They had um, payments or, or rather pledges against milestones of about 1.7 billion uh, going forward in the future. And so this was really big news because that's like, that's the biggest single raise. It's, it's real money. <laughs> yeah, that anyone's had. And these and these commitments of further funding that actually allows you to get there, like mm. that's great. And so that was the first big bit of news. And then... Just just yesterday, uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems announced that they've received $1.8 billion <gasps> to commercialize Fusion. Uh, and so... And so that's just doubled. That's doubled our our number there that we had in the report, just like in one foul swoop. So now the number's more like, like just over 4 billion, 4.2 billion or something uh, that's going to have gone into private fusion companies. So that's incredible. We're really seeing that uptick in uh, in investment. Um, I've noticed that a lot of the companies uh, um, in your report are reporting that they're they're building equipment right now, and that uh, you know it's, it might be premature to hold them to well, how much how much energy have you been able to produce at this point? Is that is that an accurate assessment of of where we are right now with with a lot of these companies? Yes, I'd say with the companies at the moment, um, they haven't produced like, fusion energy yet, um, mm. but they're they're designing and building the machines that will get them there. And there are so many different approaches, and the ones that are the the ones that are the um, like the furthest ahead, you could say, uh, mm. is the tokamak concept because that's what's been pursued in the public labs for for decades, and so right. uh, that's it's it's like a higher baseline, if you like, that what, what they're building on. So the Commonwealth Fusion Systems Rays, for example, uh, they've spun out of MIT, so they've got a lot of uh, you know, the background knowledge, if you like, from mm-hmm. from machines that were built at MIT. And what they've been doing is bringing in new technologies like high temperature superconductor magnets that I mentioned. And, and what the funding that they've just raised will allow them to do is to build the machines that they need to answer those questions about, you know, can we get more energy out of the reaction than we put in? And then can we generate electricity? And, and what are the systems that we need for a you know, to move from an experiment to a pilot plant, for example. and uh, But they'll be able to build those machines quickly in succession and, and get it done. And that's what's not been possible in the public programs because there's mm. always been such a long gap between the next machines. So so that's why the funding's so important. And, um, and so other tokamak concepts, they have them in the UK as well. So there's the 
the the main public laboratory, the UK Atomic Energy Authority, which is one of the authors of the report, um, mm-hmm. they they have a, a plan to make a, a spherical tokamak, uh, which will be a pilot plant. So that's 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 in progress. And there's also a private company called Tokamak Energy, whom I work with, and they're also pursuing the spherical tokamak concept, which is is like a tokamak, but it's just a slightly more squashed up version. So. Rather than looking like a ring donut, it looks more like a cord apple, and that improves the efficiency of of the whole system. And again, they're developing these high temperature superconducting magnets, and that's an important technology not only for fusion, but it will have a lot of spin outs and other mm. applications as well. So this is something that's also attractive for investors um, as a kind of um, bonus, if you like. You know, they want to get to right. fusion energy, but there's also these other applications. Um, but there are lots of other concepts around that are being explored by the fusion companies. And that's one thing that I thought was interesting from the report as well. Like if you look at the statistics in the beginning, at the different concepts, there are like broadly, there are some big like general categories, if you like. And so the majority mm-hmm. of companies pursue what we call magnetic confinement fusion, which is uses magnetic fields in some way to trap the fuel. But there are also some companies that are using lasers. So they're doing a more... Uh, it's called inertial confinement fusion, where you blast the fuel with usually hundreds of lasers and that kind of causes it to implode and you get the fusion conditions in the centre. Uh, those are the, the major categories. And there are a few doing uh, something that's kind of in between, which is called uh, magneto-inertial fusion. But then if you look within these broad categories... almost every fusion company is doing something slightly different. You know, they've all got a little niche or a little angle, um, which is really interesting. I was intrigued to find that one of the companies is is actually trying to exploit quantum dynamics, uh, quantum phenomenon to to get a reaction. Yes, exactly. There's there's lots. I don't know how it works personally, (laughs) but um, there are lots of different uh, concepts uh, being being investigated and I think that's a good thing because it it raises the the knowledge level for everyone in the field I mean not all of these concepts are going to work but we're, we're learning but to your earlier to your earlier point you, I mean you need, it's it's a set of newer technologies and and newer knowledge you know new uh, applied to this this field in a way that might pay off and you won't know until you actually try it. Which absolutely. Is, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also the some of the other concepts are like everyone's trying to make things smaller in general because mm-hmm. because in general Tokamaks the Tokamaks are huge. The old yeah, Tokamaks are enormous. Yeah, exactly. And the Tokamaks traditionally got bigger and bigger and bigger um historically. And that's that's because it's just very easy to, you can get more fusion power out there are three things that affect the fusion power. One is the efficiency of the the plasma, which is mm-hmm. um, something that we call beta uh, efficiency value, and um, and then there's the magnetic field, and then there's the size. And actually, the magnetic field has the most effect, followed by the efficiency beta parameter, followed by the size. But historically, it was really difficult to increase the um, the beta was kind of fixed, and the magnetic field is fixed by the technology that 
that's available at the time. So the easiest thing to increase is size. And so these machines got bigger and bigger and bigger, which made them like much more expensive. And of course, if you want to make a commercial like economic power plant, you don't want huge build costs. Like it's really in your interest to keep the machine as small as possible. And so that's where the new technologies can come in and be so much more powerful because if you can use, say, high temperature superconductors to make much higher magnetic fields, then you can increase the fusion power without having to increase the size so much. So that's mm. like the the basis behind what companies like Commonwealth Fusion Systems and Tokamak Energy are doing. But also, if you look at a completely different approach, like a not, not a Tokamak, there may be other ways of doing it much more simply and much smaller. And so some of these other concepts are much further behind in terms of the amount of research that they've had into them so and the understanding the physics basis of the approach but if they do work they could be like a much more attractive commercial proposition uh, mm -hmm. than the tokamak which is a pretty complex machine really and even the small ones at least initially will be quite big so so that's what's exciting about trying all these different things because if 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 some of the if some of them work it, it could be a lot it could be a better route to, to fusion power in the longer term. What do we need to learn? Uh, is, there, is there a common set of challenges um, that everybody is facing uh, and trying to figure out how to get over? I mean, you were talking about the, the three factors that are, that are most important, but are there specific challenges um, uh, to get getting to, um, you know, a sustainable fusion reaction or maintaining a fusion reaction, feeding it, whatever. Um, what are those challenges uh, that, uh, that the industry still needs to get over for, at this point? I think there are, there are a range of challenges and it's not just in the like the actual fusion reaction, if you like, the central, mm -hmm. <laughs> the central part of the machine. Uh, the, the challenges there are to get fusion reactions to occur because fusion happens naturally in stars. Mm -hmm. You need to make stellar conditions, essentially, in your machine in order to get fusion to happen. So this means temperatures of hundreds of millions of degrees um, or, or, de or high densities, uh, so the mm -hmm. particles are, are close enough together because essentially you've, you're getting you're getting small particles to to crash into each other and get close enough to fuse. That's what you're doing. So you need to keep your fuel hot enough and dense enough for long enough for the fusion reactions to occur. And when they start occurring, then they will actually heat the fuel as well. And the idea is that it can become self-sustaining unless you're doing inertial fusion, in which case you would pulse it with lasers. Uh -huh. You know, like a little internal combustion engine, if you like, going off every second or something. Um, Interesting. Okay. So, 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 so that's what you need to do in in like in the central part, if you like, to get the the fusion reactions happening. And so there are challenges there in in terms of well, plasmas are awkward and chaotic. If you've ever seen any, so. I've done a lot of work with the Northern Lights as well, which is like beautiful. Uh, but this is another kind of plasma, and if you've ever seen any images or particularly videos of the northern lights you'll know that they are very chaotic they kind of move and they twist and you know they're they're dynamic uh, right. this is this is all very lovely and beautiful but it's also very difficult to work <laughs> with if you're trying to like keep it controlled um in a in a fusion machine and i should say that by keeping it controlled 
it's not dangerous. If you lose control of it, it hits the wall, it cools down, you have a load of gas in your machine. So it's it's not a big problem in terms of safety, but it's a big problem in terms of getting the conditions that you need for right. fusion. You want to keep your fuel isolated. So keep it away from the walls so that you can get it hot enough for long enough. Uh, and so that requires, yeah, good control systems so that you can control this like wily dynamic uh, plasma. So that's one thing. And we've got a lot better at it over the time that we've been studying plasmas. But mm-hmm. that's the, that's just the central part. If you want to think about making a power station, there's a huge amount of systems that are going to go around that. So, like, how do you extract the heat? So we get mm-hmm. um, the fusion reaction produces helium and neutrons, and the neutrons carry away most of the energy of the reaction. And it's it's that way that we will get the the energy out, if you like. So these neutrons we expect them to fly out and we'll capture them in what we call a blanket around the outside of the machine, which would be made of lithium. And the neutrons would react with the lithium and they'd make tritium, which is one of the fuels which you will extract and put back in. Um, But it will also heat up. And so you'll you'll then have heat exchangers in this blanket area that will extract the energy. And then you will use that um, heat to make steam and drive turbines and make electricity, or you could just use the heat for industrial processes or something else. Um, but anyway, so there are various systems like on the outside of the the main central bit, and this is where a lot of the challenges lie because so far everybody's been working on the central fusion reaction, right. and and not the outer parts of of the machine. So going forward, we need to be thinking about. What are the steps that take us from an experiment to a power plant? Like what what technology needs to de- be developed? And people are thinking about that now, and it's it's really interesting. And um, there are some big ones, like well, I mentioned tritium breeding. So tritium mm-hmm. is one of the fuels. Tritium doesn't exist naturally. You need to make it. And so we need to make it in the machines, and we need to make it in sufficient quantities, and we need to just get good at the extraction of it and the handling of it. Uh, It's slightly radioactive. It has a half-life of about 12 and a half years, which means that you need to handle it properly. So there are all those kind of things that need to be developed. And and actually, the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority is is building a facility called HEAT, which will be, uh, which is is written H3, like for tritium, H380. (laughs) and it will, <laughs> yeah, um, advanced technologies or something. I think it's the AT, and and that will be looking at some of these yeah, tritium handling and systems as, as just one of the pieces of the puzzle. Like going forward, another big one is materials because the fusion environment is really hostile, and if mm. you want to build a power station that's going to last for a long period of time which obviously will keep your cost down because you don't have to replace bits all the time. But then right. you need to have the kind of materials that can withstand high temperatures, high magnetic fields, high energy neutrons. You know, All of these things are, are really difficult. And so we've got materials testing that needs to be done and materials development. These are just a couple of things. There's, there are lots more challenges like on the way. And, and now people and labs are, you know, are really thinking about these challenges and how we're going to integrate them all into building a power plant and to answer your your question from before they are pretty much similar for 
fusion in general. So they're not like specific to one particular concept, although some of them might have less. So, you know, concepts that don't have magnets like won't right. have issues there with like shielding the magnets from neutrons or anything, but they'll have other problems because they'll they'll have different challenges right, if right. you like. But in general, uh, the majority of the challenges are going to be common to to all the different approaches. And so that's why it's really important now that people are thinking about these things now and and building facilities like the heat facility that I mentioned or private right. companies stepping up and saying, "Ah oh, yes, we've been developing this technology that can do this particular thing." Uh, you know, identifying those gaps on the pathway to fusion commercialization and making sure that we're filling them as soon as possible so that they won't be showstoppers or at least uh, you know delays when it right. comes to actually building a pilot plant. A lot of the companies you surveyed in the uh, in the report seem pretty confident we're talking about in as little as 10 years. Yeah, that was another interesting finding from the report. So the statistic was, uh, well, we asked people, we asked people when we thought that they'd first see fusion electricity generated mm-hmm. or fusion on the grid somewhere around the world. And the majority of private fusion companies said in the 2030s. And that's that's a pretty ambitious timescale, actually. If you ask the people from the public laboratories, they probably say it's a lot later than that. And mm-hmm. I think that what's interesting about that is it just shows the drive and commitment that exists within the private fusion sector. I think that private companies realize that if they want to have any impact on climate targets, mm-hmm. then we need to be demonstrating the science this decade. That means getting more energy out of the reaction than we put in, proving that like fusion is possible. And then demonstrating first electricity in the 2030s and then you can roll out from there because it takes time to roll out a technology you know yes. so you need to be doing it so i think that like so that's the ambition of course it's really hard to predict how long things will actually take because science is an exploration we don't know exactly what we're going to find and also it doesn't just depend on the science as i said before when we were talking about financing or, or, or drip feeding the fusion program like it also depends on 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 the on the funding that comes in, on the government incentives, or not just the incentives, but also like the regulatory frameworks and that kind of thing. Like, are those in place or or are they going to cause delays? Uh, it depends on people. We need smart young people coming into the field and like driving this forward. So, you know, there are so many other things that go into it. But I do think that uh, that the private companies really have the ambition to see fusion happen as soon as possible. And if they can get the levels of funding that we've just seen recently, then that's going to really help with those ambitions to really drive things forward. And hopefully we can do it. Our guest today was Melanie Windridge, a plasma physicist who is wrapping up a stint as the UK Director for Communications for the Fusion Industry Association. She's lead author of the report we've been discussing. It's called The Global Fusion Industry in 2021. She is also the author of the book, Aurora, In Search of the Northern Lights and Star Chambers, The Race for Fusion Power. During our conversation, we talked about enabling technologies. MIT recently announced an advance in high-temperature superconductors. Superconducting magnets, as we noted, allow for considerably stronger magnetic fields, which are used to contain plasmas. The practical ramifications that with more powerful magnets, it 
will be possible to make smaller tokamaks. MIT said it has created just such a magnet using a relatively new superconducting material, a rare earth barium copper oxide. Since my conversation with Windridge last week, there was some more interesting news. Physicists at the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory said that, quote, for the first time, a fusion reaction has achieved a record 1.3 megajoule energy output and, for the first time, exceeding energy absorbed by fuel used to trigger it, unquote. Now, Lawrence Levermore said that was eight times greater than experiments conducted just a few months prior and 25 times greater than experiments conducted in 2018. So, it was a striking achievement that provides further encouragement to keep plugging away at the problem, but it still leaves us years away from practical fusion power, assuming we get it at all. But if we do get it, it'll be a game changer. EE Times is part of the AspenCore Publishing Company. We've just published our latest book, The AspenCore Guide to Silicon Carbide, Enabling a Smart Energy Future. The book is an up-to-the-minute resource on silicon carbide, which is gradually replacing silicon in high-voltage power ICs for electric vehicles, renewable energy, motor control, aerospace, and defense applications. This 145-page guide offers a detailed analysis of the market trends and an in-depth discussion of key aspects of silicon carbide power technology, with contributions from AspenCore editors and a range of some of the leading authorities on silicon carbide and power electronics from industry and academia. If you're interested, buy it from the EE Times store at eetimes.com shop. And that concludes this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you get to our website at eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we mentioned, along with other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. Last question. You climb, right? I have been known to climb a little, yes. Yeah. So where where is the most interesting place you what was what was your favorite climb so far? Oh goodness, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um so yeah, I should full disclosure. I have climbed Everest, so <laughs> I should say that that's quite an that is an interesting and, climb. And that didn't that that wasn't like number one on your list right there. Oh well, yeah, I guess it was actually. It was. It, the thing is, it's 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 just an amazing place, and it was um, it was like a multi year obsession for me. I just I got really interested in the history and the science. And I actually, I wrote about it. I wrote a book, but it hasn't been published yet. Uh, but I made a lot of videos for the Institute of Physics about the science that enables us to do it. Um, because it was selfishly motivated, of course. Like, I, I wanted to give myself the best chance of surviving and summiting. And so, as a scientist, I was like, well, I'm going to look into this and and see how it uh, how it works. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it was just this... It, it's just a fascinating subject, and so it's a beautiful a place. Science, there are science tips and tricks to high-altitude climbing? Oh, God, yeah, there definitely are. I think a lot of people don't fully understand 
the the challenge of Everest. You know, they think it's I, a high mountain and a big climb, but actually it's, it's a physiological I think it, thing. Personally, I think it's a romantic idea, and and personally, I know that I will. I'm I'm not. I understand that practically, it's difficult, and I would never do it. <laughs> but but you're saying that you you prepared. By checking out the science, and I interrupted you a second ago. What 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 was it that you found? Well, well, your original question was actually like, what was your favorite expedition or something like that? And that's yeah. the reason I hes- hesitated because, like, Everest is really hard. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> so, in retrospect, in retrospect, it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And I got so lucky. I had the most pure, incredible summit experience because I actually got to the summit first on the day that I went and I spent almost an hour there alone at sunrise with only my Sherpa and so we had this incredibly pure wonderful uh, summit experience so in retrospect it's 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 just wonderful but in reality the 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 first emotion that you feel on reaching the summit is just relief (laughs) and you're like thank god I can go home now um because it's two months of of just pretty much feeling awful every day and uh and there are some wonderful bits in between, of course, because the scenery is incredible and you've got the camaraderie with your teammates and the Sherpas and all of that. Um, but in general, you feel awful for two months. And so it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing to do. And that's because you're the, it's a physiological challenge. Your body is is dying. It sounds a bit nuts, but it is like mm-hmm. you're you're not supposed to live up there. Humans can't live up there. And um so yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, but it's also a a difficult, uh, challenging thing. But I always find that often the the best and the worst things that I've done are actually intertwined. You know, you can't yes, yes. you can't take them apart. So you get you get both. 